1522, a dinner of brats set off a religious revolution. Christopher uh, Froschauer, the printer, which was uh, an important job, the printer in Zurich, which was uh, an important city, um, he and his apprentices had just finished an important job. So, important job, important printing, important city. Uh, they decided to celebrate. They had just finished the first edition uh, of uh, a new collection of St. Paul's letters. And so they wanted to have a party. And they decided to serve, uh, I said brat, sausage. Uh, now, by way of backdrop, it's a Friday. Uh, it's in the spring. More specifically, it's during Lent. And according to church law at the time, you could not eat meat on Fridays during Lent. But Christopher Froschauer decides he is going to serve sausage and he invites, among other people, the town priest, Ulrich Zwingli, to come to the celebration. Uh, it was all staged, actually. They did serve sausage and they all got arrested. Well, not Zwingli. Um, he doesn't appear to eat any of the sausage, uh, so he's not arrested, but the rest of them are. And uh, he is ready to uh, fire away. And so he preaches a sermon that Sunday. He is the pastor of the uh, sort of the prominent church in town. And he preaches a sermon on the uh, choice of freedom and food. On the choice and freedom of food. And it was a uh, lashing out against the Roman Catholic Church and uh, it is going to set in motion the Reformation in Switzerland. And uh, so uh, he will win the court case. And uh, so what the courts are going to decide is that uh, Zwingli is right in that they need to look to the Bible, not to uh, the Roman Catholic Church, not to the magisterium, not to tradition, but that the uh, the. The, the genesis and sort of the sole source of Christian orthodoxy is to be found in the Bible alone. And this is going to set in motion the Reformation, not in Germany, which is what we've been talking about, but the Reformation in Switzerland. And it, it makes the point that there are actually Reformations. It's not just the Protestant Reformation, but the Protestant Reformations. So, we have been looking backwards in order to look forward. Uh, we have been doing this um, uh, high-level overview of the last 3,000 years of Western civilization and the, the last, perhaps more specifically, 2,000 years of church history in an effort to understand the present moment, in order to understand the world in which we live, um, in order to live more thoughtfully, more informed, more God-honoring lives, uh, we need to look back. The premise is you can't understand the present just by focusing on the present. You have to look back. This is lecture 38 out of a uh, proposed set of 100. We have been jumping between people, events, and ideas. They are uh, all moving fast, moving quickly because this is a high-level overview, moving quickly because I'm worried you will lose interest moving quickly because you just can't dive into the weeds if you're trying to look at these uh, big, grand narratives. So, um, I am on record uh, as saying that if you uh, start reading the New Testament without some familiarity what happens in the Old, 
It's a bit like showing up for the last 10 minutes of a movie. You might, in fact, um, enjoy some of what happens and be able to make some sense of some of the dialogue, but not nearly as much as you would if you had watched the movie from the beginning. Well, the same thing happens when it comes to uh, the church, church history, uh, Western civilization, this present culture, we, are, we have joined. When you're born, you join a conversation that has been going on for several thousand years. And, and if you really want to participate well in the conversation, you need to know what people have been saying before you were in the room, so to speak. So. Um, all that to say, you, you can't just figure out the present by focusing on the present. We have to back up. And um, so we have been looking at uh, Western civilization. We've most recently been looking at the 16th century. Uh, or to state this differently, we've been sliding into or through the eighth epoch of uh, Western Civ. So uh, era one, epic one, uh, was uh, picking up at the persecuted church. So if you're studying Western Civ, you back up another thousand years, you go back to the Greek philosophers and the Roman warriors, and then you add in the Hebrew prophets and the Christian church, uh, and you look at how all of those interact in order to give us the culture that we uh, call Western civilization. Uh, we didn't do that, backed up uh, to start after the book of Acts. So uh, we're not covering the events that are covered in the Bible. Uh, the book of Acts takes us through the 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it, it, very famously, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, draw to a close, it just stops. It doesn't end, it just stops. And so the book of Acts continues on. We sort of pick up at that point. Um, and then uh, we follow this first era is going to lead us up to uh, the, the rise of Constantine, which, uh, which leads us into the second era, the Roman era. Uh, some refer to it as the imperial church. It starts uh, with Constantine and his edict, and it goes up to the barbarians at the gate. Then uh, the third era is going to run from Rome's fall into the start of the Middle Ages, thousand-year period. We divide that up into three epochs on its own. And so the first, uh, called the Early Middle Ages, is going to run from about 500 uh, until um, about uh, 1,000. And then uh, we're going to move into the Middle Middle Ages, called the High Middle Ages, and those are going to go for about 300 years. Um, and, and then we're going to move into the Late Middle Ages, which was the time of um, corruption, time of trouble, uh, a time of decay, and that ends about 1500, and that takes us into the seventh era. This was the Renaissance, which we looked at in two lectures not long back, uh, 14th century rebirth in Europe as they go back to the sources, as they go back past all the Middle Ages, back to the Greeks and the Romans, and try and uh, rediscover that culture. So, uh, please note, uh, when we get to this part, when we get into the 16th century, you've got a bunch of things going on. It's, it's becoming a bit of a jumbled mess. So none of these epics ends abruptly. So you have people that are still living medieval lives. So they're, they're sort of more part of the late medieval period. But you have people that are now emerging into the Renaissance, the rebirth era. 
And not long after the Renaissance gets started, you have the Reformation. And oh, by the way, at the same time, you've got the age of discovery. You've got uh, Columbus sailing and you're heading into the whole colonial period. So all these things are going on at the same time. Additionally, you have got a lot of bad things going on. Diseases and droughts and the Hundred Years' War and the fall of uh, Constantinople and all kinds of other things. So all these events are happening at the same time. They're all influencing each other. So we have already had three lectures on, in this eighth era, this eighth epoch, uh, the Reformation, uh, the big, huge event that was not just a religious event, but it's a political, economic, social, cultural, musical, family, right? All these, everything is getting reshaped, reformed in this reformation period. And, um, and we have been looking uh, mostly at Luther and the things that sort of have been driven by Luther nailing 95 theses under the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. And um, uh, look, the Reformation would have started without him, as we'll see. It really did start without him because Zwingli, the guy we're going to look at, he sort of starts it in Switzerland at the same time, maybe even a little bit before Luther. He's going to be overshadowed by Luther, but uh, there's all kinds of things that were sort of ready to go here. And so the Reformation would have happened without Luther, but Luther's a huge person, huge personality, tireless. Um, he's amazing. He's, he's, he's got issues. He's troubled uh, or troubling, especially at the end of his life. There's some things we wish Luther had not said or done. But uh, I'm amazed by the guy. He reminds me of Churchill, there's a, an example everybody will like, uh, an example that people may not like. He reminds me of the Clintons. Both Bill and Hillary, uh, I'm not talking about their policies. I'm not, uh, wasn't a fan of all their policies by any means. But I was amazed that you just, you, you could knock them down and they got back up. And it was just, there's just people who just, it doesn't matter what happens, good grief, here they come again. And Luther was like that. I mean, he's up against unbelievable odds, but nobody apparently told him or, or he, he refused to accept it. And so uh, in my reading this week, I, I came across these statistics that I thought was just, it sort of captures a little bit of the, the horsepower of Luther in this Reformation. So the Wittenberg Press, uh, Johannes Wittenberg invents the printing press. And so, um, Gutenberg, I said Wittenberg. So Gutenberg invents the printing press. And, uh, and Luther, for the first few years, practically dominates uh, the printing press. So for 35 years, Luther is in the public eye. During that time, he publishes 544 books and pamphlets. That's like one every three weeks. In 1923, he published 55. That's more than one a week. He was personally responsible for 20% of all the things printed in Germany in the 1520s. One scholar added up all the things that were being written about theology and pro and con Luther. And he added up uh, all of them. So all the people writing uh, for Luther, all the people writing against Luther. And there were, uh, he counted... Uh, 807 different publications between 1518 and 1525. 
Luther personally published two times as many because it wasn't just, he's coming out with new things, but then they're republishing old things. He had uh, 1,465 by himself. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> this, one of his enemies complained, every day I get up and it's raining Luther. Uh, the guy was a, a huge power. So, we've been in the Eighth Era. We are looking, we've been looking at Luther. We're heading into the Ninth Era in a while. Uh, that's going to bring us into the Enlightenment, the Scientific Revolution. Then we move into the Modern Era, uh, going to get us into the early 20th centuries, 19th, 20th century. Uh, and there's more that follow. And as we get closer to the present day, things get more complicated and we'll go a little bit slower. But once again, I'm outrunning my headlights. Today, we are focused uh, on one of the branches that is going to break off from the Reformation. And I want to make the point that uh, tragically, I think, when the Protestant reformers break away from the Catholic Church in the 16th century, they uh, don't go very long together before they split apart. And um, in the episodes ahead, we're going to look at more, we'll look at some more detail about all the other things that are going on in the 16th century because, again, it's, uh, you got wars and discoveries and geopolitical happenings and other things that are shaping all this. Uh, the Reformation is, is being, being uh, precipitated not simply by Luther, but by all kinds of things that are sort of um, just waiting to drop. But today, in this episode, uh, number 38, what I want to focus on is one particular branch of the, the, the reformers. So you're, you're coming down the pathway and you get to a fork. You either go with the Catholic Church or you go now with what's broadly called the Protestant churches. We'll come back again to the Catholics and we'll look at uh, what's going to happen to them. We're going to see that they're going to reform themselves, uh, Council of Trent, they're going to become more missional, the Jesuits and all that, so we'll, we'll come back to them. But today, we're following the path that leads to the Protestants. And this has three branches, generally speaking. So you have those that follow Luther, who, again, I mentioned this last time, not called Lutherans. Uh, called evangelicals, although the term is not exactly synonymous with the way the word has been used in the last hundred years. But you've got the Lutherans, those who are going to follow Luther, his theology, the Augsburg Confession, and all of that. You then have uh, another branch that are going to follow Zwingli, this Swiss reformer who we're going to look at today. He is actually going to be the precursor of the Reformed theologies that I talked about last time also. So think John Calvin. Calvin is going to be following in the footsteps of Zwingli. And then there's a third division that is going to be a little bit more radical, and it's going to give birth to uh, other movements such as the Anabaptists. Uh, so the Anabaptism means to be baptized again. So the Lutherans and the Zwinglians, or the Reformed, or the Calvinists in that second camp, they will continue to uh, hold on to some of the tradition that these radical reformers are going to say, we don't see it in the Bible, you can't go there. 
And uh, Zwingli actually inspires some of this, but, but he opposes it as well. And so, for instance, they'll say, we don't see infant baptism in uh, the New Testament. Uh, I mean, there's a, sort of an argument from silence that Reformed uh, people will make, but uh, the Catholics would more appeal to tradition. And, uh, but, but these radical reformers will say it's not in the Bible, so we're not going to recognize the baptism of infants, and so we're gonna be rebaptized. Everybody's baptized as an infant back then. We're gonna be baptized again, and so you, these are called Anabaptists, <clears throat> and they're gonna head down uh, that path. So there's three streams. We're looking today uh, at the stream that comes following Zwingli, the stream uh, that is uh, following the Swiss Re Reformation, the stream that is going to lead to Reformed uh, theology. So a few points as we, uh, as we jump in. Uh, obviously, uh, Zwingli is the driver. He is a contemporary of Luther's, born six weeks after Luther was born. Uh, he lives in Switzerland, not in Germany, and you have to think differently about the Swiss back then. They were sort of hotheads. Um, don't think of the Swiss as being, uh, as sort of having as much fire in their belly as they had back then. So they had already, in the 14th century, uh, sort of gained some independence, uh, de facto independence anyway, from the Holy Roman Empire and from the Catholic Church. And they're a little bit more, um, they don't have a prince or a king, they're a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more communal in their governance. And so uh, they're, they've, they, it's a very different place. The Swiss, all these reformations will play out. The reformation in France uh, that will happen later on, they play out differently because they're playing out in their, in their culture, in their context, against their government structure, uh, the strength or weakness of the Roman Catholic Church in that particular country. So um, it's Switzerland-based and um, Zwingli is uh, gonna grow up and be more of a humanist than Luther. So Calvin will also be a humanist again. Humanism at this time, not to be confused with secular humanism. The humanists coming out of the Renaissance are those people who, among other things, are gonna be all about their education, going back to the sources, looking back. So they, they learned Greek, they, they're studying the original languages. And this is gonna be very important to Zwingli. Uh, he is going to, uh, he's going to be, you know, a Greek scholar and he's going to read the New Testament and he's going to say, I don't see any of these things in the Bible. I don't see, he's also going to read Hebrew, I don't see the purgatory, I don't see all these kinds of things, uh, prayer to the saints, uh, the, the, the office of the Pope, I don't see these things in the Bible. Zwingli will also study uh, Platonism or Neoplatonism, um, and that is going to be important a little bit later on. Um, he'll read a lot of Erasmus, uh, an important guy who I haven't said much about. He was a, uh, a Renaissance scholar, one of the most important Renaissance scholars. He's, a, he's Roman Catholic. He will remain Roman Catholic, and he will, he will uh, sort of distance himself from Luther, but he's very much a guy that says, we've got to get back to the Bible, we've got to get back to Christ. And um, he is going to uh, bring his very, uh, his very sharp mind, uh, his very wicked wit uh, to a lot of uh, critiques of 
the church. And that is going to be part of the fuel for Zwingli to decide that he needs to move away from some of the, the corruption. So interestingly, uh, Erasmus doesn't take the, the, make the final break that uh, some of the people reading him does do. Excuse me. Uh, but Zwingli will read the classics. Um, he is, he's going to take, when he gets out of college, uh, he's going to uh, take a, a position at a small church in Glarus, uh, and it's not a demanding position, so he's got time to continue his studies. Uh, he's going to continue to read the classics and the church fathers. He's going to read Erasmus. And uh, Erasmus is most famous for a book called uh, In Praise of Folly, in which he, uh, again, is sort of uh, mocking a lot of things. But what really, gets, uh, what really gets the attention of Zwingli is a poem that Erasmus had written, and it's called The Complaint of Jesus. And in this poem, The Complaint of Jesus, um, Jesus is complaining that he's bored in heaven because nobody prays to him. Everybody is praying uh, to the saints and is praying to his mother, but he's not given any work to do. So Zwingli reads this poem at some point, um, 1514, 1515, and it gets to him. And uh, he'll say later on that it was part of, uh, part of what is going to lead him to become a pretty fiery reformer. Uh, and again, he's going to go farther in his reforms than Luther will. So Luther is going to generally move to the point where he says, if the Bible doesn't... Uh, teach against something, uh, then it's okay. And Zwingli is going to be more in the camp that says, if the Bible doesn't say something is okay, it's not. Now, there are people today who will sort of adopt that, uh, <laughs> they'll adopt that same mindset as, as what Zwingli is saying here. You know, if the Bible doesn't say it's okay, uh, then it's not okay. And they'll often come out against various things and against uh, a lot of things, and I, I've, I've heard one of these you know, people speaking, uh, and I just wanted to say, okay, wait a minute, you're being recorded live. It's using electricity and using all this technology that is not okay in the Bible. Like, it's, you just can't follow this. Uh, and Zwingli didn't go completely down that path as some people do. He's, he's a bright boy. He, he can see that. Uh, but these... These are some of the reasons and some of the ways that, that Luther and uh, Zwingli are not in the end going to be able, um, even though they try, they're going to get together uh, towards the end of Zwingli's life, he'll die first, and they're going to try and pull it together and, and, and say, we are united, but they're not going to be able to pull it off. So what happens um, as, as Zwingli continues to study, continues to read Erasmus, continues to use his Greek and Hebrew to look at the texts, he is going to say that the Roman Catholic Church is making a number of mistakes. Uh, principally, he will, with Luther, agree the problem uh, certainly starts with indulgences. He doesn't uh, buy into pilgrimages. He doesn't see, again, prayer to saints and other things. He feels that the Bible is very clear that we need uh, to repent and place our faith in Christ and Christ alone in order to be reconciled uh, to God. And, and Zwingli is preaching this before Luther nails his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. Many will assume that Zwingli was a, was a disciple of Luther 
and this really bugged Zwingli. And he will say, no, we, you know, the Lord prompted us independently, one in Germany and one in, uh, in Switzerland, to, to, to do this, to reform the church. And we looked at the Bible, and this is what it says. Um, but uh, there's, there's one passage I read where uh, Zwingli says, uh, people come to me and they say, you must be a Lutheran. You sound just like him. And he says, uh, no, uh, why would you say that? Uh, I sound just like the Apostle Paul. Why don't you call me a Paulist? Or I sound just like uh, what Jesus said in, in the Gospels. Why don't you call me a Christian? Why do you call me a Lutheran? So um, sort of rankled him a little bit. He was overshadowed. Um, but he's also in more of the backwaters. And he doesn't get the pushback that Luther is going to get. So part of the, what's going to push Luther out and make him so prominent is that he is going to be... Uh, up against it, excuse me, in, in you know, going in this Leipzig dis disputation and getting uh, the papal bull excommunicating him from uh, the Pope, uh, the Diet of Worms. I mean, he's going to meet with the, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Alexander V. Luther's, because he is, um, he's more uh, in the center of the storm, being in Germany and causing these problems, who lines up against him, he's going to get all the press. So um, as, um, as Zwingli is um, sort of promoted, he's, he's considered a very able preacher, and so he moves, he's moved from the small town uh, church. He's moved to the people's, uh, be the people's priest at the great church uh, in Zurich. There he gains a large following. And um, he almost didn't get the job, by the way, because during the candidating process, Always a, a joyful time for a pastor. During the uh, candidating process, he confessed that he had uh, not uh, always been morally chaste, and in fact that he had had an affair. And this was about to, to derail him until it came down to between uh, him and one other person, one other priest who was also unmarried, but who happened to have uh, a mistress and six children. So uh, Zwingli ended up looking like... Um, I don't think I can say Boy Scout anymore, but he ended up looking much more uh, morally um, refined than this other person. So he gets the job, and he begins to preach, and um, his sermons become more and more critical of church doctrine and the devotional practices that he thinks are unbiblical, the whole sacramental system that he thinks is uh, misguided. He attacks prayers to the saints. He attacks the doctrine of purgatory, uh, and as time goes on, uh, more and more people agree with him and feel like uh, the Bible needs to be the sole authority, not this whole magisterium. So that's when they stage this little um, you know, sausage revolt, and um, he is going to carry the day. Um, so um, they will... Um, um, they will all side with him, and from there, the Reformation, from Zurich, the Reformation is going to spread throughout additional uh, provinces in Switzerland. Now, the challenge becomes, so you've got this Reformation in Germany that's big, uh, getting lots of press. You now also have this Reformation in Switzerland, and the Reformation in Germany is starting to bleed over into France, and there, the, everybody is starting to 
agitate and talk about this. You now have a printing press. Things are going in lots of different directions. The challenge again, and, and part of the reason I, I would do a, um, you know, an episode on this topic is that, is that the Protestants are going to have trouble agreeing on what they will establish as uh, secondary points. So they're going to agree, Luther and Zwingli are going to agree that the foundation of theology is the Bible, sola scriptura. They're going to agree that the Bible uh, teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, they're going to agree that they, Luther and Zwingli, that they see no uh, biblical support for transubstantiation, for penance, for treasury of merit, all these things. Um, however, they're going to have disagreements in a couple areas. Now, one of them isn't, um, isn't in the end, all that significant. But uh, I mentioned that Zwingli had been trained not just um, as, a, as a humanist, in the, in the, you know, not just studying humanism and, and languages and back to the sources. He also had some Platonic teaching. So Plato, um, if you remember, Plato was really down on the physical world. And, and so he's going to be down on the physical world as well. And so this is going to play out in he's really against things like art. As a matter of fact, he comes down against music. And, uh, and so this is going to drive a wedge between them. So one of the things that Zwingli will do is after he starts to gain some, um, some political power and political muscle, he's, much, he's a much bigger public figure in one sense. Uh, as a pastor, he's got a prominent position. You know, he's pastoring the leading church in a leading town in the leading city. Luther's in Wittenberg, which is a small town. And he's got, you know, he's a professor. He's more of an academic. He is teaching at the church, but it's not huge. Um, so so uh, Zwingli's got a, a bigger prominent role, and he's going to persuade the magistrates and the courts that, you know, they need to go to the Bible alone and that then they need to start taking out all this Catholic stuff that is in place that he doesn't like. And so uh, he's going to have, um, he's going to petition the city uh, leaders to ban unbiblical monastic preaching. So he's going right after um, the bishop in town, uh, his boss in one sense, because, uh, I mean, he's breaking away from the Catholic Church, but uh, he, he's a Catholic priest. And so he's going to go against Bishop Hugo. He's also going to go against um, clerical celibacy, uh, which it was sort of a moot point because uh, pastor, the priests were all starting to marry at this point anyway. But um, there, there's just going to be, he's going to try and use his muscle in these ways. And then he's going he's to ultimately, it's going to take him a lot longer, but he's ultimately going to get his way to say, we've got to get rid of all this religious art, all these statues, uh, all this art. And so... Uh, it takes a few years, and, and some city council members have to die before he finally gets uh, the, the support that he needs. And they're going to have this, um, this period uh, where they clean, where they purge Zurich of all the religious art. And Zwingli is going to be so excited and happy, he's going to say, the walls are all beautifully white. The walls of the churches are all beautifully white. Now, um, uh, Luther is completely against this. Luther says, look, uh, I mean, art can be, uh, can be a vehicle 
uh, a medium through which we see beauty, a medium through which the infinite can communicate. And again, Zwingli says, no, that can't happen. And again, he's, all, he's, <laughs> he's against sacred music. And so one of the things that he's, he comes out against is uh, the pipe organ. So the pipe organ uh, is on the other side of the worship wars at this point. It, it's getting dissed as a, as a new, uh, disruptive, uh, those, those young kids playing the pipe organ, banging away, uh, it's not what God would want. And so, um, so he gets rid of the pipe organ. It's, it gets shipped away. And Luther's like, no. I mean, Luther's going to write A Mighty Fortress is Our God, right? Luther's going to be writing lyrics to songs. He's going to sell. Bach is going to come out of this, uh, this line of, of, of Luther. So, uh, so you've got this disagreement between them. Uh, additionally, and by the way, remember when, um, when Luther is hiding in the castle in Wartburg, Germany, <clears throat> and he hides for a year, what brings him out of hiding is because um, uh, uh, Melanchthon, I believe, <clears throat> I'm getting my reformers confused, uh, Karlstadt or Melanchthon, one of these guys is going to start to sort of follow in that whole idea, and we've got to we got to purge everything, and we're going to get rid of clerical robes, and we're going to we're going to simplify the mass. Much of this Luther will actually go. He'll take it away when he gets to Wittenberg. He'll he'll stop the reforms, but then he'll put some of them back in place. But he really uh, he really says it's got to end when they start to destroy uh, church property and religious art and other things. He says I'm not going to be any party to that. So. Um, uh, so one of the things that they disagreed on was, was that. But the big thing that they cannot get together on is, uh, what is communion. So <clears throat> they agree that the doctrine of uh, transubstantiation is not right. They do not believe, as the, the Catholic Church was arguing, that the, you know, that the bread and the, and the cup are going to literally become the real uh, presence the, the real body and blood of Jesus. They're going to say, no. Now, Luther is going to hold on to this thing called consubstantiation, where he's going to argue that Christ is present uh, with the body and blood. He's in with and under <laughs> the, the, uh, the communion elements. Um, so the bread is going to remain pure bread, and the wine is going to remain wine, but they're going to carry, in some sense, the real uh, presence of Christ. For Luther, the Lord's Supper can't be just symbolic because Jesus said um, that this is his body, this is my blood. So Zwingli is going to say, well, Jesus also said, I am, um, you know, I'm the good shepherd, and I'm the vine, and I'm the, you know, I'm all these other things. And you have to understand, it just means I, my, this, this bread symbolizes my body. So he's going to be, um, he's going to move more towards the, the view of the communion elements as an ordinance. Now, the, the more radical reformers are going to go even further uh, down this path than Zwingli does. But um, Zwingli and Luther will, they just cannot get together on this. Luther thinks that Zwingli's views are worse than the Catholic Church's views, and uh, Zwingli thinks that Luther is, uh, is very, uh, just being very Catholic, very beholden, very popish in his uh, thinking. 
So they, they come together, again, towards the end of their life, end of Zwingli's life. It's at this, um, it's called the Marburg Colloquy. Colloquially. <laughs> it takes place in Marburg. Uh, I'm not going to try it again. So anyway, um, they get, this is 1529, and, um, and they have been having, Luther and Zwingli, have been having debates about the Lord's Supper throughout the 20s in writing, not in person. So they, I don't know that they'd ever met. They finally get together at this event, and there's 15 points of theology, and they agree. This is a who's who, by the way. It's not just the two of them that are there. They do most of the talking. But uh, all kinds of people come together, and this is sort of like the last, it's one of the last chances the Protestants have of pulling it all together and saying, um, in contrast to the Catholic Church, this is what we think the church ought to look like and we're united in this. Um, and, and it's not just the Protestants that want this. You know, the governments want this. I mean, everybody sort of wants this. And so you have Luther and uh, Zwingli meeting. And uh, of the 15 points, everybody agrees on 14 of them. But uh, they cannot, Luther and Zwingli cannot agree on this. And as, the, as, this, uh, as this confab goes on, they get madder and madder at each other. They think the other one is being absolutely stubborn and unyielding. And um, so far from being this uniting event, uh, the Marburg event intensifies the animosity between Lutherans and the Swiss. And uh, after this, it sort of becomes obvious because more people, <clears throat> this might surprise you, but more people are going to follow Zwingli and his path. I mean, there's, much, there's a lot more people who are in that reformed camp. Uh, and there's a lot more people in that world than there are people who are Lutherans. Well, um, shortly after this, um, two years after this, uh, Zwingli is killed in battle. There is um, part of what we're going to see happening is there's going to become battles, like physical battles, pick up your sword and, and run at each other uh, between the Catholics and the Protestants. And uh, he was trying to get, um, uh, Zwingli's trying to get uh, Protestant views into a different part of Switzerland, and the Catholics mount uh, an army and, and um, say, no, it's not going to happen. And they sort of oppress the missionaries that the Protestants have sent into these areas. And so Zwingli um, doesn't shirk from his duty. Luther thinks that he's crazy uh, for doing this. He thinks he should not be doing this at all. But um, he signs up and suits up for the fight. And on October 11th, 1531, he was killed in battle. Uh, after this... <laughs> Interesting note. After this, the Catholics took his body and, um, and burned it so that it would not become a relic. So given that Zwingli was so fiercely against relics, you got to think he actually approved of them burning his body so that it did not become uh, a relic. So um, when we come back in the next episode, uh, we're going to be going to be following Calvin going forward. Calvin's not the next guy up to replace Zwingli. Uh, you've got some other people that are more prominent, Booster and others, but, but Calvin becomes the most important person in this, uh, in this slipstream. 
the point I, I share today, um, and you know, I would direct you, uh, not as a church historian, but as a pastor, I would direct you to uh, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he wants us to be united and uh, to hold it together. And so uh, working together is always a good idea. It's tragic that, um, that there are these divides within the church, but we are looking at what happened, not what we wish happened. Uh, I hope this has been helpful. See you next time.